Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church. My father is named Billy Roy Parks. I'm his only son. In some ways, I'm, I'm different than him. I'm 10 centimeters shorter. I'm smaller in stature. He's a draftsman, a steel detailer. I'm a pastor. He's 85. I'm 57. But in lots of ways, I'm like him. And if you know me, and then you get a chance to meet Billy Roy Parks, I think you might feel a little bit like you've already met him before. Joanne tells me that I am like him in a lot of ways. She tells me sometimes that I'm walking like him. And uh, sometimes when I tell silly jokes, she says, that, that's exactly like what your dad would say. My laugh, I think, is a lot like my father's laugh. And when I look in the mirror, sometimes I think I see a younger version of my father looking back at me. In some small way, my sonship to his fatherhood describes Jesus' sonship to the Father. And what I want you to see this afternoon is that understanding Jesus to be God, the Son of the Father, makes all the difference in the world for us as Christians. Because God is three persons and one essence, one divine substance. We are able to be saved from our sins and come to know God personally and even more be brought into the divine life of God and the love of the Father for the Son because of the Trinity. Jesus said to God the Father when He was praying to Him in that great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, right before He went to the cross, this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. We're exploring the doctrine of the Trinity in a three-week series where in week number two, last week we explored God the Father, and of course, this week we're going to consider God the Son, and next week we'll consider God the Spirit. Now, why would we preach a series on the doctrine of the Trinity, you might be thinking to yourself. Isn't the Trinity one of those mysterious doctrines that really just confuses people? The mysteries of the of God that are spoken about in the Scriptures are spoken about so that they won't be mysterious anymore. In fact, it's just so that they would be known mysteries, secrets revealed. There are secrets about God revealed by God in His Word so that we might know Him. So you might be thinking about yourself, I'm not sure God exists. That's called 
being an agnostic. It means you're, you're not really sure if He's out there. You're not sure if God can be known. But I'm here to tell you this afternoon that God can be known. God can be known because God has revealed Himself to us. And He's done that preeminently in God the Son. So I encourage you, if you have doubts about whether God can be known, look into who God the Son is, Jesus Christ. Now the fact that there are secrets about God that are revealed so that we might know Him, known mysteries, so to speak, that doesn't mean that we will understand everything about God. He is, after all, infinite. And we can't understand infinite. After 11 chapters of exploring and explaining the great salvation that God has made possible for all people, Paul declares in the book of Romans at the end of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! But when Paul says unsearchable, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't search and explore what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. It simply means that we can't complete the search. We'll never be done. You know, brothers and sisters, even in heaven, we won't suddenly know everything that there is to know about God. Have you thought about that ever before? We will not know everything there is to know about God because if we know everything there is to know about the infinite God, we'll be omniscient and we'll never be omniscient like God. Instead, Christians, us, we will spend eternity growing in the glorious knowledge of the infinite God and it will be the most unbelievably soul-satisfying, joyful activity that you will have ever experienced in your life. You will not want to be torn away from it. You will continue joyfully, contentedly, eagerly searching out the riches of the knowledge of God forever and ever, and it will never end. If you're the kind of person that thinks, you know, I, I wonder if heaven is going to be boring. Well, I want to ask you, you know, is the ocean boring? Are, are beautiful mountain vistas boring? Is thinking about the universe and the planets and galaxies and, and just how your hand works or how conception comes about and Babies are born and grow. Is that boring? Maybe heaven will be boring to you if you think those things are boring. <laughs> I think not. Oh no, heaven won't be boring. Not at all. We'll do this searching of the unsearchable God together too. We'll do it all together. We won't be like 
Some lonely researcher surrounded by dusty books down in the dark basement of an ancient library? No, no. We'll together grow in the knowledge of the glory of God in His glorious presence, the glorious presence of God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus. And you know what? We get to start that search now if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've begun to know the unsearchable riches of the knowledge of God in Christ. What a privilege it is that we have to get to know God more and more. The Trinity is so important and foundational to our faith that it is included in our statement of faith. There's lots of things in the Bible that aren't in our statement of faith, true things. But the Trinity is a very, very important thing, and so it's there. And it, this is what it says in our statement of faith about the Trinity. We believe that there is only one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is fully God and equal in every divine perfection, carrying out distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Now, I want us to, once again, just like we did last week, pause in the middle of the sermon, and I want us to read the Nicene Creed together. So, it's going to be up on the screen behind us, and it expands on what we've just read about in our statement of faith about the Trinity. You can look on your bulletin. Now, I want you to stand with me, and I want you, I know you have a mask on, but I want you to speak loudly. And I want you to speak boldly, particularly if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, because these are truths that you confess, and your eternal life is staked on these truths. Let's read together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made a man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, and who spoke through the prophets. And we believe that there is one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated.
Last week, we learned that each person of the Trinity is fully God, and reprinted in your bulletins again on page 9 is that simple diagram uh, that's not meant to be a picture of God. It's meant to accumulate and aggregate these statements that are true about the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, equal in every divine perfection, as the article in our statement of faith says. But the idea that God exists as three distinct persons, it can be confusing to us because we think of persons as if they were people. And that's not the kind of person that the persons of the Trinity are. The persons of the Trinity are not like all the persons or the people in this room. We are, we're different people. We each have a different will. We each make choices separate from one another. And our DNA, our DNA is different from one another. No two people here have the same DNA in their cells, in the cells of their body. Each person is unique. But to use an analogy, and analogies, I agree, are a bit dangerous with the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity each have the same DNA. And that's what we mean when we say, in theological terms, they have the same essence. They are made of the same substance. They have the same, therefore, the same attributes. The attributes of authority and power and wisdom and prestige, and honor, and glory. But they are not three gods. Three persons doesn't mean three gods when it comes to the Trinity. Now, how they relate to one another within the Trinity is what makes them different persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, and so on. How they relate to one another is laid down in Scripture for us. For example, the Father has eternally begotten the Son. That's why it says in the Nicene Creed, He's begotten but not made. He's not a created being. The Son has existed eternally. He's not created like you and I were created through our mother and our father. Rather, the Son has eternally been proceeding from the Father. There was no beginning. There will be no end of that. And that defines the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's called the relationship of origin. And it's what distinguishes one person from the Trinity from another one in the, what we call the Godhead. But when God does anything outside of the relationships between the three persons in the Trinity, when they act outside, like in creation or redemption of human beings, the three persons act together. They act in unison. What any one person in the Trinity does acting in the world, their actions cannot be considered to be separate from one another. They are together. They're unified. And that's because they are of the same essence or substance. And because they're of the same essence or substance, they have the same will. Their will, the will of God, the triune God, is 
unitary. It's singular. Now, this is very, very important. If you're staying with me, I want you to hold on to that truth because it's going to mean even more to you as I go along and we talk about God the Son and what God the Son has done. Now, for example, when we speak about God, the triune God, acting outside of themselves, outside of their relationships with one another, Scripture says, for example, that the Father created and the Son created and the Spirit created. They all created, for example. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Father created and the Son created, and Scripture also says that the Spirit created. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit was there with the Father and the Son acting in creation. And we can say that the same for the act of redemption, saving people, sinners in the world. All three persons of the Trinity are said by Scripture to be participating in our redemption according to the one will that's located in their divine essence. They all saved us, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that unity that the Trinity have, that shared one will, is something that also is to be mirrored then in our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, granted, we are different than God. We have different wills from one another. So how can we be so unified? How can we be one like the Godhead? I turn to John chapter 17. If you have your Bible and you open it there to John chapter 17, looking at verse 20 through 22, and three, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How can Jesus pray for us to be one like God the Father and the Son are one? They share the same will. And the way that that can happen, of course, is... The more and more that you and I with our individual separate wills are bowed to the will of the one spirit that dwells in all of us, we will become one as Jesus prayed for us. That's how it can happen. So that unity that is in the Trinity is something that can be mirrored in us even though we are 
creatures and He is the Creator. I pray that the Lord would do that in us as a congregation, that the more and more that we bow our wills to the will of the one Spirit that dwells in all of us who believe, that we would be one as Jesus prayed for us to be one. Now, we're going to add one more truth to our understanding of the Trinity. Even though the persons of the Trinity do everything outside of their being together with one will in unison, those actions take on a Trinitarian shape, we can say, because of their differing relationships with one another. And so, in everything that God does, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are unified, but they are done from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Do you hear the Trinitarian shape just in the way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are related to one another? Because in their relationships with one another, the Father eternally begets the Son, and together they breathe out the Spirit. Therefore, in their acts of creation and redemption, different persons of the Trinity then are manifested or shown more specially than the others. And so, the Father is more specially displayed in creation. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. The Son is more specially displayed in redemption. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1 as well because the Father sent the Son. Now, you could think of this manifesting, special manifesting of one of each of the members of the Trinity in some of their external actions with this analogy. And again... Bear with me, analogies can be dangerous, so we'll not push it too far. But you can think of it like a trio of persons singing the same song together on a stage. But one of them steps forward and is the most prominent singer for one of the songs. The other two are still there. They're singing the same song, but they aren't the most visible. You can hear their voices, but the one is more prominent. And then when they sing a second song, another member of the trio steps forward and the other two are backgrounded. All three are singing the same song for every song that they sing. But each one of the Trinity takes the front role for a different song. Now again, all analogies break down at some point, so please don't demand more of my trio analogy than I've tried to make of it. But perhaps it can help you to understand why our statement of faith says that the triune God is three persons equal in every divine perfection, and we believe that they all have one will. But the last phrase says that the three carry out distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Distinct but harmonious offices, just like a trio singing the same song. All right, now, I hope you've grasped some of that. We're ready to move on to more fully consider Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
And when we look through Scripture to discover more about the Son of God, we find that the Son is described as the Father's eternal Word. And so when God the Father said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, God the Father was speaking through the Son to create. John 1 verses 1 through 3 say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Son is also said to be the perfect image of the Father. And so in Colossians 1, verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, by image, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus is like a a two-dimensional picture of God the Father. He's God. He's been seen and touched by the apostles. And so Paul goes on in Colossians to declare In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not a paper-thin picture of the Father that's just maybe stuck on the refrigerator. (laughs) He had the fullness of God in him. And the Son is also said to be the radiance and exact imprint of God the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Now, all these verses come from three of the most important chapters in the Bible that teach us perhaps the most about Jesus the Son in the least amount of space. They're all the first chapters of three different books in the Bible, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. And if you want to grow deeper and deeper in knowing God the Son, those three pages in your Bible should be as weathered and worn as any page between Genesis and Revelation. Jesus the Son has revealed the Father to us so that we might know Him and love Him. To use the singing trio analogy again, God the Son is the person of the Trinity who steps to the front to sing with the Father and the Spirit the song of redemption for us. Now, what happened with God, the eternal Son, in order for our redemption to take place? God the Son took on flesh and became a man. That's what happened. I remember a Christmas card that I received years ago. It was very striking to me. On the cover was six pictures of famous leaders and religious leaders. There was Buddha. There was Adolf Hitler. There was Caesar and on and on, all these pictures of men. And you opened it up and it said, there are many men who would be God, but only one God who would be man, Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, we have one of the greatest summaries of what happened when Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This is perhaps the fourth chapter 
in your Bible that should be as worn as John, Colossians, and Hebrews chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. Look with me at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What exactly happened in the Incarnation? What is Philippians chapter 2 describing to us? In the conception and the birth of Jesus, God the eternal Son added humanity to His divine being. He didn't lose His divinity, He added His humanity. He took it on. We, we might say that Jesus, the divine Son, clothed Himself with humanity we could say. In fact, pretty soon in the next few weeks, we're going to be singing more and more songs about the incarnation of Jesus. Honestly, we should sing these songs throughout the year. We should celebrate it all throughout all 12 months of the calendar. But one particular song that stands out to me is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and the line in it that says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, Hail the incarnate deity. Do you hear what that line is saying? Veiled in flesh. In other words, His divinity was veiled by His humanity, covered over. And it says, hailed in flesh, the Godhead see. Even though He was enfleshed as a man, you could see God in Him. He was God. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God came into our world. He took on the very flesh that we have. In the incarnation, God the divine Son who has a divine nature added His humanity to Himself and in doing he took on another will, another nature. And so, Jesus is the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth who had two wills. He had a divine will, and He had a human will. There's a big theological term that describes the fact that Jesus had two natures in one person. You and I have only one will, one nature, two natures in one person, and it's called the hypostatic union. You can write that down and impress all your friends. Hypostatic union, two natures in one person. And this explains, of course, why we can read the gospel accounts about Jesus the God-man and see Jesus deliberating over things. And so this explains why Jesus, the divine Son, who has the same will as God the Father and the Spirit, can be on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. He's speaking about His human will being conformed to the, 
will of the Father. It's the very reason why the Scriptures can say that Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom. It's the very reason why the Scriptures can say the Son learned obedience because He had two natures, two wills. But why did Jesus become a man? Why did He enflesh Himself? Why was the Godhead veiled in flesh? He did this because it was necessary to save us, to save sinners like you and I. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, again to Galatians 4, verses 3 through 5. Galatians 4, 3 through 5. Paul is speaking to the Galatians and he says, beginning in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Now, you ladies, you might be wondering, I'm not so sure about being adopted as a son. Well, I I don't think you should worry too much about it because we men have to grapple with the fact that we're a part of the bride of Christ. But Paul here is explaining that all people are born into slavery, slavery to sin. Our natures were corrupted from birth, corrupted human natures. And so our bent is not towards worshiping and loving God. Our bent is toward rebellion against God. And our rebellion enslaves us. But not only does it enslave us, but it it also leaves us in debt to the one God who is holy and just and righteous. Everything that we were meant to be, having been made in His image, but are not. He designed us all to live in a loving, covenanted relationship with Himself, but we've broken that covenant, and the penalty is death, eternal separation from God as Father, and eternal wrath and judgment from God as Judge. We had no way to pay the debt that we owed. No way to buy our way out of slavery to sin, nor did we even want to. We loved our slavery to sin. I know I did. But God the Father sent forth His beloved Son, His only begotten Son, and only a perfect human being, somewhat without sin, and God, the one whom we had rebelled against, could come to save us. He took on flesh and was unjustly crucified, but was resurrected. Death could not hold Him in the grave. And in His death on the cross and His resurrection to new life, Jesus was securing our redemption. He was the perfect man paying a price that we couldn't pay ourselves. And when His innocent blood was spilled, it brought us our freedom. Not just freedom to live for ourselves, but freedom to live for God. 
and free to live joined with God the Father and the Son. Because when we repent and trust in Jesus, the Son of God, we receive adoption as sons. We're we're brought, so to speak, into the family of God. Jesus, the Son of God, had to come as a son of man in order to redeem men and women. Now imagine for just a moment that you've been in prison for a debt that you couldn't repay. And someone comes and pays off that debt. Now you're free to go. And you might imagine being led out to the gates of the prison and released. The gates close behind you. The guards walk back inside. There's no more bars holding you in. You're free, but you're alone. You're released, but you're on your own. Our redemption in Christ is so, so far much better than that. We've not just been released, we've been adopted. There's a family, so to speak, waiting at the gates of this slavery to sin prison to take us in. God Himself, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are there to embrace us and shower us with the love that they've shared since eternity past. Brothers and sisters, do you understand your salvation as being welcomed into the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Or do you simply think of your salvation as your sins are forgiven? Oh yes, that's there but it's the doorway into so much more. Your salvation isn't just the end of slavery to sin, but it's the beginning of life in the family of unfathomable love, the love of the triune God. So many of us, once we repent and trust Jesus the Son, we simply go about life trying not to sin. That's kind of our goal, right? We see that as a goal. But understanding our adoption through God the Son sheds a whole new light on salvation, if we think in those terms. Of course, to sin is to return to our former rebellious ways. Sin is significant. But if we view our new life in Christ as it should be, we'll see life in Christ as being adopted into a loving family, marked by the love of the Father for the Son and His love for the Father in return. Adopted sons have all the same rights and privileges of the only begotten son. Jesus earned that for us. The privilege of knowing and loving the Father and the Son in the Spirit. Think of what that means for your prayer life, brothers and sisters. You're not approaching someone who's like the Wizard of Oz, some scary figure with, you're approaching a father in heaven who's adopted you into his, himself. Go to him with boldness. Go to him with courage. Go to him with confidence because of what God has done, shown in his love by sending the Son to redeem us. If you're not a Christian, you're, you're always welcome here at Covenant Hope Church, of course. But let me ask you a question. Is adoption into the loving community of the one God describe how you view Christianity? Before today, at least? 
If you thought of the Christian faith as simply taking on a new set of do's and don'ts in your life, consider what the Son has done in His death and His resurrection. He's made adoption into the loving family of God a gracious and free offer. It's available to you now, right here and now, today. Won't you trust Him? Won't you look to Jesus in faith? That's how you become adopted in the family. I want to leave you with a clear sense of what our adoption through Christ has brought us into. One last Bible reference. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Here in this passage, the Apostle John writes about what God has done through the special work of His Son. Jesus was someone that John knew very, very well. He's the one who could write that we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. And he says this in his epistle, beginning with verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of the Father on Himself so that we might know the love of the Father just as He's known it and still knows it. God the Father sent the Son into the world to show us the love that is shared between all three persons of the Trinity, and not just to show us that love, but to enable us to live in that love. What kindness and grace God has shown us through the Son. Jesus has shown us the Father. May we grow to know this love and who this love gives to us more and more each day. Our final song today is God's uh, glorify yourself. God's goal is to bring glory to Himself. He did it first in creation. He's doing it now in salvation. And one day He'll bring glory to Himself by bringing all things to completion when Christ returns. Let's pray and then let's sing together.